0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week's podcast is a little bit different because just as we're about to record it, Boris Johnson announced we're all going back into lockdown. So I thought it would be useful this week just to look at some of those stats around women being more likely to contract COVID and see how scary they are. And we talked to Deborah James, aka Bell Babe about just why you shouldn't wait to check out that lump or fear or doubt, go see a GP, look after yourself. Hopefully this gives you some inspiration. First up, we're talking women's health and COVID. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. So we're starting tonight's show with Dr. Hannah Burren brown doctor, women's health advocate, Women's Equality Party member, activist, would-be MP, all-round brilliant woman, and hopefully we're going to get a little bit of advice and reassurance from Hannah about the new lockdown situation. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we have to just say for everyone listening, if it gets a bit ridiculous, it's because I'm recording this podcast with Hannah while I am under my duvet, and she's literally watching me under my duvet. I'm so sorry that this is not a higher tech setup.
2: This is amazing. It's a lovely duvet. So you know what? If if it's keeping you warm, my love, you, you crack on.
1: Thank you. Hannah, um, first of all, give me from a doctor's perspective, Boris Johnson announced, I mean, it's not a surprise lockdown, but it was a bit of like a oh no, oh no, there is a lockdown. Oh, okay, it's happening. From um from the NHS perspective, how are you feeling about it right now?
2: I wish it it happened sooner, to be honest. I think a lot of what I'm feeling right now is frustration at the slow movement because, you know, we saw that there was evidence coming from SAGE back in September. There have been many, many calls for this for a long time. And we know that winter in the NHS is always challenging. It's only been a couple of years since the Red Cross declared a humanitarian crisis in the NHS at winter. Um, Even without a pandemic, Oh yeah, they declared a humanitarian crisis in AE departments in the NHS oh a couple of years ago now um, over the winter. And this is the thing is like, it's always difficult. We always dread winter a little bit as healthcare staff, because we know it's going to be a tough time. With the pandemic on top of that, it's even more terrifying. And so, yeah, I think there's quite a lot of frustration at the moment. I commented to somebody yesterday when we had the announcement of the further lockdown that I just feel numb about it. It does feel, even though we've been well into a second wave for a long time now, um, it does feel like I'm just not sure how we're going to have the strength to do it again no. um, without wanting to sound too bleak. I feel like a lot of us missed out on rest and recuperation and holidays and all of the important stuff we needed after the first wave. So you've got a workforce that is exhausted, a workforce that is depleted Um mm-hmm. And a workforce that has been chronically underfunded and understaffed for many, many years. So lo and behold, we are not in the greatest of shape for managing a pandemic. But I also know my colleagues are blimmin' awesome and will be rolling up their sleeves and cracking on as best we can because that's what you do. I but mean, I just wish is. it hadn't come to this.
1: They are absolutely awesome and I think we're all incredibly grateful for them. But also I think I personally, not to get too political about this, but I personally am just astonished that we haven't used the past few months to throw all the money at the nhs i mean i know that we're throwing a lot of money around generally everywhere but surely you go do you know what let's throw some money at this let's bring in some secondment staff so people can take a break let's rebuild some stuff that needs rebuilding let's invest in some supplies we don't have and just
2: nobody's thought to do it 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 does feel very yeah it's very frustrating yeah. <laughs> um frankly i feel like we we always knew that a second wave was quite likely mm. um particularly with some of the decisions made earlier along and we knew that even before the pandemic the nhs was in a very bad state we had 44000 nursing vacancies last year that's gone up to fifty thousand this year we were never in a good shape to start with because we've been so underfunded and we keep hearing about how it's okay because they're going to open nightingale hospitals which will increase capacity well that's lovely but it's not just about increasing bed spaces because you need nurses and doctors and all of the allied health professionals to staff them and that's what we don't have we don't have the staff and so it frustrates me when we hear politicians talking about all these amazing things they're doing with things like the Nightingale, because actually, day to day in the NHS, we're being asked to do ever more with ever less, and eventually something's got to give, and I'm terrified that's going to happen during a second wave.
1: Oh, Hannah, I, I feel so much for you, and also listening to you, I'm, I am a little, I'm scared a bit, I'm a bit like, oh God. But the reason that we got you on today was because I wanted to talk to someone about one of the other things that slightly scared me, which was a stat I saw a few days ago saying that one of the groups with the kind of biggest increase in numbers of infections is women between 20 to 40. What is going on there?
2: So I think the first thing to say is that there's a lot we don't understand about coronavirus um, particularly in terms of the groups that it affects so for example we do know that men have a higher mortality if they catch coronavirus they're more likely mm. to die um, with with like a 57 mortality rate for men compared to women um, and that could be for a number of reasons but we're not entirely sure for example men are more likely to have issues with obesity hypertension diabetes they tend yeah. to die younger anyway but we know that women who contract it are more likely to have long covid so these kind of ongoing long symptoms. Now there's an argument that this may be because women mount a more powerful immune response to viruses. Mm-hmm. When we're not entirely sure. But as I said, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that there doesn't seem to be any obvious physiological reason for why this group of women are contracting coronavirus more quickly. There's no like body wh- thing that we can work out to explain yeah. this. But what we do know is that looking more widely there are social socioeconomic factors, there are cultural factors that put women more in the line of fire with the pandemic, particularly this group. So there was some really interesting data from the think tank called Autonomy that came out last year, um, which kind of stated that there were over three million people in the UK who were working in jobs that were at high risk of exposure to coronavirus. And 77% of those 3 million people were women. That's huge. Massively. And over 1 million of people within that group were Mm -hmm. considered low paid. And 98% of those low paid workers were women.
1: What are the kind of jobs they're talking about?
2: So, the jobs that are highest risk, I mean, there's obviously healthcare workers. The healthcare sector is 77% female. Social care is 83% female. And childcare is 92% female. Oh, wow, of course. Cool. So, this is why it's these jobs that are most kind of at risk because they have the closest contact with coronavirus patients with other people even if your patient doesn't have coronavirus that you know of or doesn't have symptoms it is impossible to provide personal care for that person at a social distance and we know all the issues that we've had with ppe in the past mm. ppe is never perfect Um, and so they are far more likely to contract things. We also have to think about things like the hospitality industry, because we know that's very disproportionately full of young women. It's young women that are waiting. It's young women that are working behind bars more so than young men. So I think it's the nature of the jobs that women do, particularly women in these cohorts. And also there are the bigger factors. We know that women are make up the majority of people that live in poverty in the UK And so it's difficult for them to take additional precautions, like distancing from someone in the household who may have coronavirus. Mm. They're more likely to take on the burden of unpaid care. So if you have an elderly relative with coronavirus who needs food parcels, chances are it's going to be one of the women of the family that's going over and delivering those and potentially exposing themselves to risk. And then there's the even bigger impact of (laughs) these people, these women are less likely to hit the minimum income floor for statutory sick pay, yeah. so if they're told to self isolate because someone in their household has symptoms, they are going to be making the very real decision of if i self isolate and I don't get sick pay, then I can't feed my kids, yeah, and that's the kind of decision that's the kind of risk they're having to put themselves in, and then obviously potentially leaving the household because they financially have to then potentially contracting the virus or giving it to other people if they've got it and they don't know, that sort of thing. So women are, this is a hugely gendered crisis, and it has been since day one of the pandemic, but I think we're seeing all the more the huge impact of this on women as we've gone back to work.
1: When you said some of those stats there, you know, um, childcare is 92%, healthcare 77%, it it seems astonishing, actually, that we haven't really thought about this before, or even that it hasn't caught up with us before. Is there anything that, as women, we should be thinking about in terms of, you know, how we talk to the government about this and making the government where this is a, women are kind of putting themselves, not quite in the front line, but certainly in the kind of second or third line. Because of the work we're doing? Well,
2: I mean, I would argue because women are the majority of healthcare workers and social care workers. So, you know, we are the front line. And I think it's really disheartening, you know, yesterday's announcements about lockdown, it was Mm -hmm. three men standing behind podiums. There was next to no mention of childcare. There was next to no mention of what women should do if they're in situations of domestic violence, how they're meant to get out of their homes. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this sort of stuff is intrinsically political and when only 34% of our MPs are female we have to start questioning whether that's the reason we don't have better representation and why women's issues are not covered there's been some fantastic work from the women's budget group recently who've looked at things like okay we desperately need an investment in care you know towards the end of the first wave Boris came out and did this kind of build, build, build speech of how he was gonna recover the economy. And he was stood in front of fluorescent jackets and hard hats, it was like a Bob the Builder set. (laughs) And he kind of made this massive speech about a huge investment in construction. But actually, if you look at the statistics, if you take this back, right back to economics, we know that an equivalent investment in care that they want to put into construction would actually bring back 30% more into the economy. It would create more jobs for men and women. It would create 10% more jobs than an an equivalent investment in construction. And we also know that the equivalent investment in care would be better for the environment so there's a mm. climate change element to this i think you know i'm deputy leader of the women's equality party i am going to be saying <laughs> that women should be politicized and should be talking about this but at a time when we're seeing one in four maybe one in three childcare facilities saying they're likely to have to close down by the end of the year nearly quarter of a million childcare places are likely to close by christmas that's a crisis of female redundancies over the last wave were as a direct result of a lack of childcare. That is going to have a huge economic impact on the entire country and we need to be talking about this. So I think we need to be getting out on social media. We need to be lobbying our MPs. We need to be saying, okay, what's your plan for childcare? Dear local MP, what would you like me to do with my kid when you expect me to go back to work? How am I expected to do this job and look after my child when your complete lack of investment in care throughout this has left me without any childcare facilities? We need to be asking these questions and asking them loudly because otherwise we will not see change and we need to be looking at how we build our way out of this pandemic and looking at how we build back and everyone keeps talking about building back better I want to build back equal I am, <laughs> I am damned if I'm going to see this increase gender inequalities but I'm terrified that that's what's going to happen because the people in charge just haven't thought about the gendered elements of this and it's not just in the UK it's around the world but the UK is doing this particularly badly I feel.
1: This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You said so much I've said that, that I was just like applauding. <laughs> <the day>. um, <laughs> because it really does feel, and I said this, it's so interesting how quickly you get used to stuff, Hannah, because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic saying, I'm so frustrated just seeing men standing, talking to me and telling me what I shouldn't, shouldn't be doing and how they're interpreting the stats. And now I'm just used to it. And I don't expect to see a woman. And I'm like, oh, it's those those guys again. And we get, and I'm, I think, a bit of a pain in the ass about that kind of stuff. So we get so used to being told what to do by three generally white men that we don't question it. And when we don't question it, then we're going, hang on, why has nobody thought about childcare? One of the things I thought was that actually if we'd had a kind of a 50-50 balance of men and women, making a decision about when we went into lockdown we would have gone down into lockdown over half term
2: most definitely
1: yeah women had their kids at home they were all geared up for having kids at home they're like okay we know it's happening we know it's going to be like a tough two weeks let's just sort it out they would have been organized about it
2: also we would have had time to come up with plans for after the half term
1: exactly and we would have said things like actually let's book it in three months
2: in advance <laughs> or at least let's not be so stubborn about not yeah. wanting to be seen to give in to the opposition because that's got to be that's got yeah. to have played quite a sizable part in the reluctance to go into a full lockdown mm. labor called for it so they dug their heels in and didn't do it for another 12 days <laughs> like, mm. if they'd just gone you know what maybe you're right on this yeah maybe we should take the opportunity when half term is happening because as you say it's a great opportunity to give families the chance to plan yeah. and We know that travel, and we know that travel to work and to school is reduced anyway. It would be would have been the perfect time, but it was male stubbornness that stopped that happening, and it's beyond frustrating. You would have taken your kids out of
1: school anyway, so there isn't this dithering about can the kids stay in school? Should they come home? Should they stay in school? Should they come home? You know, it would be clear actually they were going to be home anyway, so we're not disrupting anything. We're not disrupting education. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, also, that's, that's my bugbear. I'm very, very angry
0: about it. No,
2: I, I think I, I share your anger. I think <laughs> it's clear. I share your anger because we know that you know parents are understandably going to be terrified by the announcement yesterday, and a lot of parents, particularly with kids in nursery, are going to be saying, "What, what can we do? Do we take our kids out of mm-hmm. nursery? People will take their children out of nursery if they don't need to be there right now. Where's the bailout for the nurseries? Mm. Where, where are those nursery places going to come from when those parents feel able to return their kids to nurseries? Because they're not going to be there anymore because a lot of them are privately owned businesses run yeah. by women who are going to go out of business and there's no bailout, there's no financial plan for them. So it's scary. It's really, really scary at the moment.
1: We haven't had a lot of good news in our chat. I mean, there isn't a lot
0: of good news. <laughs> oh, I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something. What's, what's the good news here? It's nearly Christmas. Um, but there, there isn't a lot of good news um but i wanted to get your advice kind of with your medical hat on from because i'm sure you see this sort of you know from the gp perspective of people turning up and being like i'm really worried i'm feeling really anxious i'm feeling really stressed i'm feeling depressed we're going into the part of the year when we know levels of anxiety and depression rise anyway of course yeah we're going into a kind of darker period we're not going to be able to go out running for two hours as we were we're going into lockdown people are feeling really anxious about this really i feel like anxious that isn't a strong enough word to be honest even i who consider myself quite frankly the most laid-back woman in the planet like, and i my <laughs> saying you know, permanently horizontal you are literally <laughs> under a duvet right now i'm literally under a <laughs> duvet right now <laughs> good point um and I have felt my anxiety levels being at the point where, you know, when you're okay, but w- one the smallest thing tips you over the edge. You know? Yeah. And so what should we all be doing to try and manage
2: that and look after ourselves a bit? So you're completely right. This is something that I'm hearing a lot from patients at the moment and from friends and colleagues, to be mm-hmm. honest, um, because we do know that rates of anxiety and depression um, do go up in the winter anyway it's darker months you know it's harder to socialize all of that sort of stuff and now we've got a lockdown and a pandemic so it's completely understandable that people feel that way there are There are a number of services out there. We've heard a lot recently about how massively underfunded mental health services are, and they have been for a long, long time. But every area in the UK will have its own kind of mental well-being service. It might be called IAPT, which is Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, or it might be called Leeds Mental Well-being Services, for example. That's the one up here. They're all Googleable. And they all have loads of online resources for things like, you know, basic, basic mindfulness right the way through to the phone number of people if you're in crisis and you need to speak to somebody immediately if you don't feel safe, Mm. all of that local information and local resources is right there and if you need counseling if you need to talk to somebody there are resources listed there as well i think a lot of people don't even know that's there you don't need to speak to your gp you don't need somebody to refer you in it's a self-referral service and that's around england certainly so i think it's really worth checking out the local resources to you i think also it's worth trying to remember the really and it's going to sound a little bit saccharine we have been here before
0: Mm -hmm. okay we've
2: got through a lockdown before and yeah it was horrible it was rough as hell and many of us were very miserable and it was a really difficult time but we have come out of the other side of it and yes we're going back in but there are things that we did there are tricks that we learned there are you know making sure you do have enough food i'm not saying go and stockpile toilet rolls by Mm -hmm. any stretch though if that's something that's particularly worrying you then you know um You have dispensation, but I think it's about kind of trying to plan and trying to do really basic self-care stuff. Like if you're working from home, making sure you're working if possible. And I know it's not possible for everyone away from your bed, away from your sofa, away from your relaxing space, try and create those boundaries between work and home time, trying to stick to specific schedules of when you're doing what as well, timetabling, that sort of thing, is all the more important when you're working from home and when you're not able to go out. And actually scheduling in nice stuff I know it sounds really small, but actually it's saying, right, it's Thursday night. Thursday night is movie night when I get my best mate on Zoom and we all watch a crappy 90s film together and drink a bottle of wine each. <laughs> like, I wouldn't recommend a whole bottle of wine, obviously, doctor. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's something to be said for scheduling that self-care time and allowing yourself the space. Also, I mean, the final thing I'd say is really maintaining contact with the outside world mm. because, yeah, socializing is difficult. We can't go out, you know, you can go and do a bit of exercise, walk around your park with one other person. It's not the same. It isn't the same. Um, But I think being really deliberate about it. Yes, everyone mocks Zoom quizzes and Zoom parties and that sort of stuff. But actually having that social time, even if it's just one on one where you can go, you know what, mate, I'm, I'm actually finding this really hard. Being able to have those frank conversations also reassures you that other people are feeling the same way. And I think one of the most damaging things you can do for your mental health is end up feeling like you're the only one who feels as bad as you do. I promise you, you're not. I promise you, you are not alone in this. There's a reason that I see hundreds of people come and talk to me about this over the winter. We're all having to go through this and I know it's really hard, but I think sharing those experiences and putting yourself in a place where you can talk about them with other people, whether they be professionals or whether they be your friends and family is really important. Isolating is dangerous and we need to address the fact that mental health is going to suffer through this. But yeah, really basic self-care stuff. It can all mount up and it can really help. But there are services out there and your GP, they are we are all open. I would not look this exhausted right now if GPs hadn't been open throughout the pandemic. Um we're at the end of the phone and we want to know if you're struggling. We are still here to help.
1: Hannah, thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you, Dr. Hannah Bannon Brown there. Uh, GP, Wonder Woman, superstar, <laughs> deputy leader of the Women's Equality Party, or Anne Brilliant. Thank you so much for being so informative and reassuring. Thank you. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. One of the big questions that lots of people have been raising about this new lockdown is what does it mean for the health of people that are not suffering from COVID? For the people who are waiting on cancer diagnosis, who are sitting at home thinking, oh, well, I'm, maybe I feel a lump, but you know what, I'm going to wait until the lockdown is over. Uh, what does it mean for those people in need of urgent medical treatment in order to live? Here to talk to me about that now is Deborah James, a.k.a. Bow Babe. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for joining me. No problem. How are you, Harriet? I am good, thank you. So tell me, you have done a lot of campaigning and writing about this and about the impact that lockdown had on you and other cancer sufferers over the last six months. What do you think about the news that we are going into lockdown again?
0: I'm scared. I'm really scared, actually. I think um, on behalf of the cancer community, I I know hearing the message tonight that um, the NHS is still open for business for all business Mm -hmm. however we know first time that people were scared they were just scared they heard the message loud and clear didn't they but it was kind of protect the nhs stay away and Mm -hmm. what worries me is then things like cancer which is one of just a small collateral of covid Um, was heard so clearly that 75% drop in referrals happened the first mm. time around. Now well, we can't afford for that to happen again. And I know the message from the top has, has been said tonight, but I I don't think it's going to happen. If I'm being honest, I, I'm expecting people who unfortunately have symptoms to be scared enough to stay away. I I don't think it's good enough actually. I don't, I tell you, my
1: local GP, who I, you know I think they're great. I've been going to them for years. I like them a lot. But they have literally barricaded their front door. So if you want to go in, you have to have an appointment, you have to stand outside. But if you are just walking past and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I've got this thing that doesn't feel very right. Maybe I should go to the doctors. And you walk past a barricaded
0: front door. The message very clearly is we don't want you to come in. Yeah, it's just not good enough. And things like, um, you know, of you and I talk a lot about female mm. health in terms of yep. uh, gynecological health. I actually had a smear test yesterday. And I know I, this is I kind of I saw it. <laughs> I know, because I posted a photograph. <laughs> and um, I know that sounds slightly strange, but, you know, there's nothing on um, towards about it. It's very normal. But we know that, unfortunately, we're at all- an all-time low for things like smear tests, which saves lives. I put my cervix, albeit covered in text, <laughs> online yesterday i got hundreds of messages from people saying thank you a for talking about it yeah. and b yes i had a smear test and it saved my life or c i i now need to go and have a smear test and we know that sadly things like this routine stuff that does save lives, didn't happen first time round. and i i really hope it is. I I feel... It's, it's really silly because my whole attitude to this has changed a lot, Harriet, mm. since the start, I suppose, of COVID. And I'm not for a second saying I'm not scared of COVID. I'm very scared of COVID. Mm. But I'm more scared about what it's doing to us collaterally uh, or for the rest of our diseases.
1: Can I ask you, so I think this is a really important point you raised there, and a lot of people who were shielding in the first lockdown, I think are still in a place of fear are still in a place of fear where they think oh my god can I go out what's going to happen if I do go out what would you say to them
0: so I actually um, uh, I met so I, I made a panorama on this yeah. on, well, on Britain's cancer crisis and during the making of that, I spoke to some brilliant people about what happens when those people, like myself, don't actually access the care that is keeping them alive. Yeah. So, for example, um, because of maybe being shielded, you don't want to call your doctor because you've got an extra symptom of something. Yeah. And unfortunately, the data shows that actually it has a larger impact on, in terms of death rates. And the reality is that, actually, those people, myself included, we have to put our health first, and that's not always COVID. It might be things like cancer, it might be managing diabetes, it might be heart disease. And the message is, actually, the NHS say that they're open for business. I'm very supportive of that message. Um, So please, please be your own champion. Unfortunately, it's not going to come to you, and you're going to have to fight. I think all the people that I've interviewed throughout whether it's writing articles or whatever it is. Mm. They've kind of all said the same thing in terms of the specialists within the system. They're saying, we are open for business, but I think you have to be your own champion. So don't expect somebody to kind of wrap you up. Just kind of, if something's not right in your body, please, please go. Deborah, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, fantastic. Deborah
1: James there, aka Bal Babe. Really important point she makes. You know, we are all responsible for our own health we are. And that doesn't just mean COVID. It means being responsible for your health. So if you feel like you have got a lump or something has changed or there's a bit or something strange going on with your body, please go and talk to your GP about it. Even if they've barricaded the door, they still want to see you. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass guests and in-depth
2: chat. Hold up.